Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary friends. Welcome to Multicultural TV Talk, a Media Village podcast where we bring exclusive interviews with talent and creatives from across entertainment, discovering their stories and how they're changing the face of stardom across media. As always, I am your host, Juan Ayala. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now let's get to talking. So in honor of Pride Month, we are joined today by the creative forces behind some of the most iconic projects in queer pop culture and media. From Scout Productions, we have the co-founder and executive producer, David Collins, and Chief Creative Officer, Rob Eric. Thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen, uh, and happy Pride Month. <laughs> happy Pride Month. So uh, before we dive into uh, Queer Eye, Legendary, and all of your other shows, I'd like to go back to where this all began. So how did you first get involved in entertainment, and uh, how did that eventually lead to becoming producers and show creators? <laughs> Um, you have well, a boring story. My story's fun. So go get your story. Mine's not boring. Mine's I, isn't uh, boring. That's true. No, I uh, I started out as Jodie Foster's assistant. It doesn't get gayer and better than that. <laughs> um, in, in 1991, uh, I uh, had the fortune of picking up Jodie Foster and Peggy Reisky. Peggy is the creator and director of Trevor and creator of Trevor Project. Again, yay Pride Month. Uh, but Peggy and Jody were coming into Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, to shoot uh, uh, Jody's directorial debut, Little Man Tate. And uh, I happened to get to pick her up and got to become uh, not only her assistant, but working for the uh, Peggy as the producer's assistant and Carol Cuddy. And uh, I, I left that film with the title Special Projects Coordinator. Uh, yeah, how about that? No PA for me, uh, because Jody <laughs> sat me down and said, you can go babysit parking cones on the set, or you can sit here and watch the whole movie go across your desk. And uh, that's where I met my business partner and soon to be husband at that point, Michael Williams, who is the co-founder of Scout as well. Uh, he was the location manager and I was cleaning toilets. So that's a pretty good beginning of a, of a, of a way into the entertainment industry. Um, but uh, it was through that movie that um, I went on and Michael and I uh, started Scout three years later, uh, based on a lot of encouragement from, from Jody to go and tell stories that, that we wanted to tell uh, and, and take it from there. Yeah. Awesome. And Rob, can I, can I lead into yours? I think I can. Um, a few years after that, uh, I might have had the fortune of coming up with this cool idea for a little show called Queer Eye. Uh, and that happened uh, in Boston. And when we were casting for uh, the original Fab Five, so 2002. I got it from here. He's got it. <laughs> I get a phone call uh, in New York. I was living in New York City at the time. And I get a phone call from my then roommate, Carson Cressley, uh, who said, hey, I was in a cab and heard a commercial for a new show called Queer Eye that has five experts and I'm gonna go for fashion, you should go for grooming. Uh, because at the time I had a skincare line and I was like, oh, weird, sure. Let's book it and figure it out. And so the two of us went and auditioned for Queer Eye and uh, I thought I killed my audition because David and Michael had just gone to the launch of my skincare line, had bought the products and loved it. I was the only person that was really getting concentrated conversation in the, my, my, uh, my casting. Carson does his, and he's like, I, I, I 
killed. I didn't kill it. Like it was not good. I don't think I'm going to get a call back. We were supposed to hear back in like three or four days. I think a day later, Carson hears back and he's like, don't worry about it. You'll hear back. Never heard back. So flash forward a year, Carson goes off to do the pilot in Boston and David and Michael were living in Boston and they would come stay with us at the house in in New York City. Yeah. And when they came, I just ignored them because <laughs> them, they ignored me. But as I am a Libra, I started to balance out a little bit and started having conversations and David and I hit it off creatively. And at the time I, I also owned, uh, I was doing advertising and I had a graphic design company. And so David was like, well, could you do a couple of things for us and for the company? And I was like, sure. So I took them on quote unquote as a client and then sort of weaseled my way into the company and became a producer, then an executive producer. And now uh, 18 years later, I'm the chief creative <laughs> officer of the company. So well. <laughs> that's how I got the into humble beginnings. <laughs> Come to find out if you ignore the co-founders long enough, they'll hire you. So. <laughs> Uh, so I'm curious, you know, with the catalog now being so expansive between Queer Eye, Legendary, The Quest, and so many other equal, shows. The hype. The hype. Equal yeah. is a, a four-part doc on HBO Max about queer history. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's it's amazing. It's called Equal. So I'm, I'm curious, what is the process that goes into creating a new show and getting it off the ground? And typically, how long have you found that it takes with so many different sort of genres and things uh, taking so long to develop? I mean, it all depends. I mean, we certainly have a lens at, at Scout of how we look at shows. And I, I've mentioned this a couple of times, David and I have done interviews about this where, you know, David, myself, Michael, like the three partners of the company are all gay. And we all grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and we did not see ourselves represented on TV. And if we did see ourselves represented on TV, we were a background character, or we were the villain, or we were the butt of the joke. And in, you know, when David created Queer Eye, all of a sudden, five gay men became the face of a show and, and, and were everywhere. And so it started to open up doors, particularly in Unscripted. And so the way that we look at our shows are threefold. One, is it something that we're passionate about? Is it a topic that we're passionate about? Two, does it push a conversation forward? So does it explore an, a world that is omnicultural and, and how do we cast into that world? And then the, the last part is how, do, how does Scout look at the show to make it different? So we've been, you know, Unscripted has been around for 30 something years. And we wanna make sure that when we look at a show like Legendary, like what's our version of a dance competition? Or when we look at the hype, what's our version of a fashion show? Because Queer Eye was like, what's our version of a transformation show? And so that's how we sort of look at it. And then, depending on the idea. I mean, we have stuff that goes straight to series. We have stuff that we do pilots for. And so it all depends. But, you know, the quest, from the time the quest was sold to Disney Plus to the time that it aired was nearly two years. Mm -hmm. So when everybody says, you know, oh, I'm going to get into unscripted because it's faster than scripted. No, it's not. No, it's, it's sometimes not. it is like if you're lucky enough to go straight to series, but it, it takes a lot of passion. It takes a lot of tenacity and a lot of meetings 
where creative will start to change a little bit. And David and I, what we try to do is hold on to our creative so that a show and, and work with people like HBO Max, who embraces our creative and, and lets us flourish. You know, with Legendary, we wanted the authenticity. We wanted the the what we found so special about Ballroom to be on TV in the way that it is. And, and they embraced us and, and continue to embrace us on that show. <clears throat> the, the process of, of how something, it, that spark of an idea to it actually then becoming a show and coming on air, it, it has a million incarnations, right? But I think the most important thing that Rob said is passion, right? If Rob and I aren't feeling the passion and aren't feeling the fire in our gut, it's, it's not going to move forward. And that's the cool part about our history together, right? Mm -hmm. uh, while I might not have cast him as the Fab Five, I knew his, his creative genius was going to be spent best elsewhere. And that's been the fun part of the past 20 years, is Rob and I, ha him having an idea and me poo-pooing it, or me having an idea and him poo-pooing it, or us being like, oh, that's great, but what if we did it this way? Or what if I took it that way? And that's what's cool about the filter Rob mentioned, right? Transformation through information told with comedy and heart. We use that as a filter for most of our, our programming at large. But what's most fun is when you have that little spark of an idea, legendary, as Rob said, we someone invited us to a ball. Rob had been to a ball. I had never been to a ball. I saw the ball and my heart exploded, right? I was like, oh my goodness, what a world. What a beautiful, beautiful world that I didn't know existed. And so I got sucked into that world. And with Rob and I and our partners, Renata and Shant, we all came together and we're like, this is important. We need to come into this world and share and celebrate this world with, with the rest of the world. And I had read an interview um, that you had all done uh, around the time that Legendary was first launching. And you had said that you had spent a lot of time with the heads of the, of the houses yeah. to make sure that it was a true collaboration. And Unfortunately, a lot of what goes on in the industry, while it may have good intentions or while they're hoping to spearhead representation, it doesn't is not always embraced by the community because it lacks that authenticity. So how important was that for you to well, that, build that trust? Everything. Absolutely everything. Rob, I'll throw to you in a second. I, I just I'll say this. That moment that I went to that first ball. And Rob knows I'm a big crybaby. I'm the I'm the 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 big-hearted, sentimental. You know, I feel it all. I I I was just really overtaken by these young young people, just so having so much fun. And I got into an elevator with two two young people who were literally in tears, crying because they had been asked to be part of a house. And I didn't understand how the houses worked or what a house mother was or any of that. But I knew that their story was important. So when I came back and told Rob, I was like, yes, it's ballroom. It's like Paris is burning. It's this, that, and the other. We instantly knew that the world was meant to be celebrated, but that I'm an old white gay guy from the 80s, right? How am I going to do that properly? And what we did was invite everyone to come to Scout sit down with us and start a dialogue. What do you want to see? How do you want to see yourself? What, how, how is it that we can celebrate you? And, and what Rob has always said and what we, we say together is like, we got to hand the microphones to them. We got to let them tell their story instead of it being through our eyes or anything like that. Sure, we created the stage and a platform to tell the story, but we handed the microphone to them and let them tell their story. 
Rob. And it's also, I mean, in any production, you always have to remember that it's TV. And, and I think I was very clear in our first meeting. I went to my first ball in 1989. I was a DJ in New York City for many years, a DJ in Boston. I helped bring Paris is Burning to Boston for premiere. Like, so that world I was very familiar with. And, and it was, it's, it's a world that I was in, in terms of being a DJ and watching my floor and watching the houses come or people, members of houses come and dance on, on my dance floors. It was always a very open community. You were always going to have those people in a community that wanted to stay underground, that wanted to stay quiet. And we were very open and upfront about it. Like, A, we wanted to give the authenticity to the show, but it was also going to be a television show and at that a competition. And what it would do is it would, our goal has never changed on whether that be uh, legendary or the hype. Our competition shows are about putting people who don't get the spotlight on them either into a place where they do get the spotlight and let them flourish from that spotlight, right? So if you have not been known before and yet you're watching shows and you're seeing Ariana Grande or you're seeing people do ballroom moves on stage and you're feeling like that representation isn't there, well then let us help you put that stage together so that you can do that. You're always gonna have people that you know push back we cast the Fab Five and have everything from a non-binary uh, person to a, a, a gay Muslim who is married to a gay Mormon to an African-American man. Like, and then you do that and people still are like, but what about, and what about, what about? We can only, we, we try to move as much as we can to success, right? Because in failure, you're not gonna put that spotlight out there. You're not gonna get that ability to raise the awareness that you want. And so with Legendary, we were very clear and said, we understand if you don't want to be part of this, but for us, we would love to tell the story in a triumphant way on a stage, in a competition and become the biggest ball in the world with the biggest prize. And over the course of three seasons, that's what we've managed to yeah. do. And and I've all what I've always loved about ballroom is ballroom is a world that anybody can be a part of if you don't feel like you're part of a world. And that's how it was built, and that's what it was meant to be. So our judges, the people that we bring on to the show, whether you like the person that we're bringing on or not, at the end of the day, ballroom is about acceptance of everyone. So I always sort of like. And I see comments, I ignore a good portion of those comments because everybody is entitled to their opinion, but we were able to put ballroom in the spotlight and we're so proud of that and proud of the people that have been there and what's come of them. House of Lanvin, the first season, doing an actual campaign for Lanvin. Mark Jacobs coming forward and being a fan of the show, Issa Rae, like all these fans of the show that have come forward to be like, I love this show, how do I be part of it? Bob the Drag Queen, Leslie Jones, like who are huge fans of ballroom and never thought they could be a part of it and are like, wow, I'm being accepted into this world. That's what matters. And the fact that we keep that camera on them so that you can see and you can love and you can be a part of ballroom. If you're living in Indiana in some tiny little town and you don't feel like you connect to anybody, you go to YouTube and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's this world. Of, oh, I want to learn this. That's what it's about. Yeah. That was a long ramble on that, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I can't say enough how important it is to see all of that representation because 
growing up myself as a member of a uh, Hispanic conservative religious house, I couldn't watch Queer Eye. I couldn't, I couldn't even watch Glee because there was a gay character on it. I would get in trouble or being told not to watch things. And now mm-hmm. being, you know, almost 30 and, and, you know, out and, and part of, and, and at least being able to host these types of conversations um, and with the two of you and with, you know, with Scout really is like, it, it's really, really impactful. So I just want to say, you know, thank you for all that you guys have done um, throughout all of your shows over the oh, years. Thank you, Juan. That's very sweet. Thanks. Have you have you seen, Rob and I were just talking, have you seen Heartstopper? I have not yet. I'm so behind. <laughs> I, I am I am going to tell you to, to take the time and sit down and watch it. For me as a, I'm about to be 55, 55-year-old gay man, I got to sit with, I'm a girl dad. I have twin girls. One of them identifies as a lesbian. And I got to sit with my daughter. I'm going to cry and watch this show that is so loving and so beautiful because it's a teenage romance with two gay boys and a lesbian couple as the focus, as the story of like, that was my life. Like when they touch hands and there's these funny animations. But for me as a, as a 55 year old gay man, it meant the world that I got to in 2003 sit on a couch with my daughters and watch this beautiful love story of two teenage boys falling in love. That is what I'm- And not have it be filtered, have it be real and authentic. And, you know, for how many years growing up did David and I have to watch shows? You know, I knew I was gay as soon as I was out, uh, as soon as I was out of the room. Like, you knew there was something different about you, yet you weren't seeing that person on TV. Then when you did, you saw somebody where you're like, oh, that's what you think we all are. We're all the villain. We're all this person. Or we're the, we're the brunt of a joke. And to see television now get to a place where it's like, I'm sorry, why wouldn't you have a queer character on this show? That's what the world has. Like, we all know this. And we're seeing young kids. When, when David first launched Queer Eye, and, and I was part of this and able to see this, uh, Bravo, because it originally launched on Bravo, had kept all the emails that came in in the first 24 hours. And there were pages and pages of kids who wrote emails saying, I thought I was the only person like me because I never got to see anybody. And here are these five guys. And I'm like, I'm like them. I'm, there is a community out there. That's why we make the shows that we make. Yeah. We like to tell good stories and be entertained because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we're artists and we're producers but we're also three gay men that grew up not seeing ourselves. And that goes for a lot of communities and a lot of communities that still don't see themselves on TV. So to have a show where we have such trans visibility and positive trans visibility with Legendary, that's what we all should be doing. We all should be saying omnicultural entertainment isn't, shouldn't be called omnicultural entertainment, but it should just be called entertainment. But until then, we've got to keep making these shows that say like, hey, what about this community? Like, why are you ignoring this person? And, uh, you know, with so many of the shows that you all create and produce, as you said, this incredibly beautiful omnicultural experience and in showcasing queer and BIPOC voices that often go underrepresented in media, are there any stories or experiences that you haven't gotten to showcase yet that you're hoping to in the future? I think more within the world, the trans world, I think is super, super, super important right now. Mm-hmm. Just the violence against trans women 
and the and not understanding. And a lot of people are fearful what they don't understand. So to be able to explain that, to be able to showcase that, and to be able to normalize what we've already known is normal for a long time within our own community, I think those are stories that we'll continue to, to, to tell. David and I right now are working on a documentary that's really interesting that sort of sets itself back and, and says, here's stuff you don't know about what we went through. And, and one thing that uh, David brought up about equal, a lot of people believe that the history of gay rights started at Stonewall, but equal takes place in the 50 years prior, before that, that was the fuse that was lit, that were those iconic people. We, whether you are gay, trans, lesbian, bisexual, uh, white, black, it doesn't matter. We have history that's not being told properly. And we need to make sure that we tell that history and what we have been through that a younger generation isn't aware of yet and needs to have as a basis to say, if that person could do it through that adversity, imagine what I can do with the little bit that we have right now. So mm -hmm. that's important to us. Like that's how we look at our stories and how we figure out what story to tell. If you were to have this sort of back to the future moment and you could uh, go up to your 13 year old self and you told them you'd made it this far in your career. Emmy's successful production company and you know, being, or at least spearheading that change that they wanna see, how do you think that they'd react? I mean, I was always crazy. Like I was always that kid that never, like I never said no. Um, I always thought I could, and that goes back and I'll give 100% credit to my mother who always said, you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it. And it's why my career has been crazy in the amount of different things that I've done and learned to do. So I would just go back to myself and probably say that little thought you're having in the back of the brain that says, fuck you, I can do whatever I want. Keep that going because it's going to help you. You, you stole my thought is that little 13 year old for me, I, I want very much uh, related to what you shared. So thank you for being vulnerable. Southern Baptist upbringing, fire and brimstone, that little 11 year old me sitting in a pew being told that he was going to burn in hell was my story. So at 13, the world was was not very friendly. It was not what I wanted. But if I could go back to that little 13, I would tell them the same thing. That little voice in the back of your head that keeps telling you that what that man up in that pulpit is saying is not true. Stick with that. Follow that gut. Because what he was saying was not true. The world does change and there is amazing opportunity and your children are going to grow and be even a bigger voice than you could have ever imagined because they're going to grow up having having none of these boundaries and barriers and, and darkness put upon them, but instead a beautiful open door where my daughter, who, who at 13, by the way, came out at 11, gets to feel so comfortable in her skin and in herself. Imagine what she's going to be able to do with that. Imagine without the weight and boundaries that Rob and I grew up with as, as old gays from the 80s. I'll say this, <laughs> I, I, one last thing. And I think this is important for the next generation coming up. So um, we were working with this company called Belladonia. It's a uh, Latin streetwear company run by two women. And I went to one of their pop-ups and they have a very 
amazing and very passionate following. And I went to see them uh, where they opened the store and girls were coming in, Latin girls were coming in and Mexican girls were coming in from like Arizona and Texas to drive to this pop-up on Melrose. The place was packed. And Lala, Lala Romero is her name. Lala got up to talk and this young girl said, I, how do I do this? How, how do I do this? And why, like, how did you, and she, her response was so beautiful and brilliant. And she said, let me just tell you something. I did this because I didn't see myself in the community that I loved, which was streetwear and fashion. And she said, if you don't see yourself in the community of music or in theater or in or literature or television, then you need to stand up and you need to fight to put your face and your story out there. So my encouragement to anyone is if you're not seeing your representation of who you are, then get up and go do it because not everybody can do it by themselves. You have to go and find your community, go find it and go put your face out there so that you see yourself represented because Lord knows we're trying, but there's a, we need a lot more help. <laughs> Be vulnerable and tell your story. Yeah. Share your stories. David and Rob, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And, and for, again, for all you've done for, for the community. Oh, total pleasure. Thank you, Juan. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well. Thank you Happy Pride. Happy Pride. <laughs> Happy Pride.